Good evening all, John chapter 1. John chapter 1. As we continue on through our study in the book of John, every Wednesday Elias asks me where are we can be at, and I say John 1. He goes, do you just want me to put part 4? So yes, we're in John 1, part 4. Next week we'll be in John 1, part 5. But we will get into John 2 next week, and I tell you the pace will pick up here a little bit. As you've heard me mention many times before as we're going through the book of John, it's important for us to get the theology of this book down, to make sure we fully grasp and understand what we're talking about, these terms, that Jesus is the Word, He is life, He is light, all these things that we've been covering. Because as we mentioned last week, when we start getting into the narrative of the book and the practicality of the book, if I come to you and say, Jesus said to do this... Well, why would I listen to Jesus? Why well, listen to Jesus? Because he is the word, the light, and the life. He is God. So since he is God, I listen to what he has to say. John shows us that at the beginning of this book. So we're getting into more of the narrative of this book. We've been introduced into who John the Baptist was last week. We did a lot on his life story and where he came from. And now we're going to continue this idea here as well. And I want you to notice something with this. John does a good job here at the beginning of this book really letting us know time frames. If you take a look at verse 19, verses 19 through 28 is one day. Starting in verse 29, the next day. We have now day 2. That goes to verse 34. Verse 35, and the next day. So really what we're doing here is three days with three conversations with three different groups of people. Now, First group is a very private conversation with the religious leaders of the day. And the message is very simply put, he is here. The Messiah is here. That's day one. Day two, it's a public conversation. Talking to the people where John says in verse 29, Behold, look, the Lamb of God. Day three is a personal conversation. This is where the disciples are. And the main theme of this is the idea of now follow the Lamb. Day one, private, with the religious leaders. He is here, the Messiah. Day two, public, speaking to the people. Behold the Lamb. Day three, personal. Jesus starts calling his disciples. Time to follow the Lamb. Now, I want you to understand a couple things here a little bit, and we lose this sometimes in going through the Gospels. Jesus knew these disciples for quite some time. It's not until about a year and a half into his ministry that he actually has the 12 apostles. So what happens is these disciples that he is now going to have multiple conversations with, there is a process. If you just go read like the book of Mark, all of a sudden Jesus shows up and he looks at Peter and Andrew, James and John and says, follow me. And they drop their nets and follow him. But we now from studying the book of John that they had a relationship that had been built up and Jesus is now saying it's time for you to leave everything and follow me. And eventually about a year and a half into the ministry they become what is known as the 12 apostles. Which we'll get into that here in a little bit. So just a reminder of why we're doing this. As John 20 says the purpose of this book is to point people towards Christ. Remember John the Baptist ministry is a ministry of preparation. Verse 23 of John 1. He said I am the voice of one crying in the wilderness make straight the way of the Lord. It is my job to say, get prepared for the coming Messiah. This is his job. Back to verse 6 of John 1. There was a man sent from God whose name was John. This is John the Baptist. This man came for a witness, to bear witness of the light that all through him might believe. He was not the light, but was sent to bear witness of that light. Note the repetition of the word witness, verses 7 and 8. Jump ahead to verse 15, same chapter. John bore witness of him and cried out, saying, This was he of whom I am said, He who comes after me is preferred before me. 
for he was before me. John's role is to be a witness, prepare people to meet Christ. The baptism that he's doing is a baptism. It's a sign of repentance and preparation of the coming Messiah. It was a full immersion baptism that was happening in the Jordan River. So with that reminder of an introduction, we now get to back to verse 29. So this is day two. Publicly speaking to the people, Behold, look, the Lamb. Verse 29, the next day John saw Jesus coming toward him and said, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. This is of he of whom I said, After me comes a man who is preferred before me, for he was before me. I did not know him, but that he should be revealed to Israel. Therefore I came baptizing with water, and John bore witness, saying, I saw the Spirit descending from heaven like a dove, and he remained upon him. I did not know him. But he who sent me to baptize with water said to me, Upon whom you see the Spirit descending and remaining on him, that is he who baptizes with the Holy Spirit. And I have seen and testified that this is the Son of God. Let's get a little bit of a time frame here, if you will, please. Keep your hand here in John 1. We're going to go on a quick little tour. We're going to go to Matthew 3 first. Matthew 3. This conversation in John, what we can piece together from going through the Gospels, seems to happen after Jesus' 40 days in the wilderness. So keep that in the back of your mind. There's the baptism of Jesus, and as soon as the baptism of Jesus happens, he is then taken into the wilderness for 40 days, the 40 days of testing and trial. John seems to pick up in verse 29 after that, and let me show you why we believe that. Look at Matthew 3, verse 13. It says, Then Jesus came from Galilee to John at the Jordan to be baptized by him. And John tried to prevent him, saying, I need to be baptized by you, and are you coming to me? But Jesus answered and said to him, Permit it to be so now, for thus is this fitting for us to fulfill all righteousness. Then he allowed him. When he had been baptized, Jesus came up immediately from the water, and behold, the heavens were opened to him, and he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and alighting upon him. And suddenly a voice came from heaven, saying, This is my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased. Then Jesus was led up by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. And when he had fasted forty days and forty nights, afterwards he was hungry. You've heard me mention this many times before, but it bears repeating. Please be very, very careful with chapter breaks and verses. They're not part of the original text. They were added about 500 years ago. And they are very, very good. Without chapter breaks and verses, taking a book like Isaiah or Ezekiel, you would say, hey, there's this great passage I want to share with you. Where is it at? Oh, it's about two-thirds of the way through it. We'd spend all day trying to find something. I just said, let's go to Matthew 3, and you went right to Matthew 3. They serve a purpose, but just remember, a lot of times, and a lot of you are probably into the new year, and you're doing Bible readings and stuff, and I am all for that. But almost every Bible reading plan I know breaks it up by chapters and etc. And what happens is sometimes you lose the flow a little bit. So maybe the Bible reading was, we're going to read Matthew 3 today. But you need to understand that Matthew 3 goes right into Matthew 4 where it says, Then Jesus was led up by the Spirit. And there's this idea of one continuous flow. The public ministry of the baptism. The voice from heaven. The Holy Spirit coming down in the form of a dove. And then all of a sudden he goes into the wilderness. It's important to see the flow of that. So what looks like happens is Jesus is baptized. Voice, Holy Spirit. Holy Spirit coming down all of a sudden makes the lights go on for John. Because remember we just read back in John chapter 1 that God told him the one that we see the Holy Spirit coming down upon, he's the one. Then Jesus goes into the wilderness, disappears for 40 days, comes back. And now we're back to John chapter 1 where John says, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. 
John can say, this is the guy. How do I know it's the guy? Because verse 33, I did not know him, but he who sent me to baptize with water said to me, upon whom you see the Spirit descending and remaining on him, this is he who baptizes with the Holy Spirit. You know, John is doing this line of baptism. Just people are coming out of the woodwork. You know, the Bible says in Luke chapter 3 that there was an excitement. There was an expectation with John. Israel had not had a prophet in hundreds of years. And as far as we can tell, during the time of John, there was not another prophet. This was the guy. And he was a character. The way he dressed, the food he ate coming out of the wilderness, so much so that the Pharisees and the Sadducees are coming down from Jerusalem saying, Who are you? Remember last week, are you the Christ? Are you the prophet? You know, are you Elijah? Jesus is just one more Jew lining up to get baptized. No one else would know. You'd be in line right behind the Messiah and you wouldn't know. This is not the romantic paintings where Jesus' head glowed. So you're waiting next in line to be baptized. Jesus gets baptized. And as soon as Jesus comes, John says, you're the guy. Voice from heaven, Holy Spirit, he goes away. And everybody's now looking at you saying, top that. No, I'm just James the Jew. No. This was something. So when Jesus comes back, verse 29, you can see John's response is so emphatic at this point. Folks, this is the man. This is the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Let's talk about that phrase real quick before we get into a little bit more. Behold, look. First off, sin. It's interesting that it's singular. It's not the sins of the world. One time, one sacrifice for all sin. He takes away the sin of the world. I think that's important to note. Number two, the lamb. The lamb. Now this is something from Genesis to Revelation. God likes the concept of a lamb. Go all the way back to Genesis 4 when Cain and Abel offered up their sacrifices. Abel was a shepherd and brought a sheep from the flock. And his sacrifice was accepted. All the way to the book of Revelation, the last chapter in the Bible. Revelation chapter 2, excuse me, 22. And there shall be no more curse, but the throne of God and of the Lamb shall be in it. His servants shall serve him. So in Genesis 4, there's the sacrifice of the Lamb. All the way to Revelation chapter 22, he's known as the Lamb. In fact, there's 20 plus references in the book of Revelation to the Lamb. I want to show you one of those references. Can you go with me to Revelation 5? Revelation 5. This idea of the Lamb, spoken of throughout the entire Bible, an ongoing theme. Peter keeps this concept going as you're going to Revelation 5. 1 Peter 1 9. But with the precious blood of Christ, as of a Lamb, without blemish and without spot. Paul carries the same mindset, 1 Corinthians 5, 7. Therefore purge out the old leaven, that you may be a new lump, since you are truly our unleavened. For indeed Christ, our Passover, lamb, was sacrificed for us. Peter talks about it. Paul talks about it. Old Testament prophecy, Isaiah 53, 7. He was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. He was led as a lamb to the slaughter and as a sheep before its shearers is silent, so he opened not his mouth. This is an ongoing theme, the concept of a lamb. And when you see the idea of a lamb, thinking from an Old Testament standpoint, you would get the sacrifice. 
Quick reminder of the sacrifices that happened at the temple. They would sacrifice two lambs every day at the temple. A morning and an evening sacrifice. Two lambs. On the Sabbath day, you would sacrifice two extra lambs. On the first day of the month, you would sacrifice seven extra lambs. If you add up all the lambs sacrificed throughout the year, including feasts and festivals, you are sacrificing over a thousand lambs a year at the temple. So therefore, lamb and sacrifice went hand in hand from a Jewish perspective. So therefore, behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. That is a deep point from Genesis to Revelation of the sacrifice of sins that was happening over a thousand times a year at the temple. The Jews would get that. Now, if you've ever been around a lamb, lambs are not a threat in any way whatsoever. The only threat of a lamb is their cuteness. I've seen lots of baby animals, grew up on a farm, we had lambs, and I still think a baby lamb is about the cutest baby animal in the world. They just are. The noise, the sound, everything. They're just adorable there. Now, we do have to understand a little bit when these animals that are being sacrificed, they are not the newborn lambs. They're older than that, but they still carry the idea and the concept of a lamb. But when you think of powerful intimidation, we joked a couple Sundays ago about when God calls us a turtle dove in the book of Psalms. Turtle doves are not a threat. Lambs are not a threat. They're a great sacrifice for sin. Don't you want to be something, don't you want to envision Jesus being more powerful? Yeah, well, that's what Revelation talks about. Let's take a look at this. Chapter 5, verse 1. And I saw on the right hand of him who sat on the throne a scroll written inside and on the back, sealed with seven seals. Then I saw a strong angel proclaiming with a loud voice, Who is worthy to open the scroll and to loose its seals? Who is worthy? Who is worthy to fix this problem of sin in the world and everything? Verse 3, and no one in heaven or on earth or under the earth was able to open the scroll to look at it. So I wept much because no one was found worthy to open and read the scroll to look at it. But one of the elders said to me, do not weep. Behold the lion of the tribe of Judah. The root of David has prevailed to open the scroll and to loose its seven seals. Yeah, that's, that's what I like. The lion. Doesn't that just sound majestic and powerful? But yeah, look at six. And I looked and behold, in the midst of the throne of the four living creatures, in the midst of the elders stood a lamb, as though it had been slain. Jesus is the lion that saved you from the blood, as the blood of the lamb. He, he can have both. But I find it fascinating that we celebrate the lion And verse 5, the power, the strength to open the scroll of life and judgment. And then you get to verse 6, but it's the blood of the Lamb that is doing it. So therefore, jump ahead to like verse 12. Worthy is the Lamb who was slain to receive power and riches and wisdom and strength and honor and glory and blessing. So in our minds, Lamb may not carry a lot of power and might and majesty and intimidation. But the blood of the Lamb is the most powerful thing ever. And that's why it's so important back in John 1, verse 29, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Back to John 1, please. We have to answer a couple, another question here before we move on. You know, we talk about Jesus getting baptized. It's not mentioned here in the book of John. But why was Jesus baptized? 
I think it's important to note too, and it says in John 4 verse 2, which we'll get to in a few weeks here, Jesus did not baptize anybody. The Bible is, is, makes that point very specifically clear. Christ himself never baptized anybody. But Christ got baptized. And if you called it back in Matthew 3 when we read through it, Jesus said, permit this to fulfill all righteousness. That's an interesting phrase. It almost makes it sound like Jesus had some type of sin issue that needed to be taken care of. Now, we know that's not true because from a theological standpoint, we can make a very strong case that Jesus never sinned and he was sinless. So why would Jesus get baptized? This is not the purpose and the point of the teaching, but I just want to share these points with you real quick in case this ever comes up of why Christ got baptized. There's a few different reasons why. In doing the study for this message, I found one commentator that gave six possible solutions. Everybody has an opinion. I'm just going to share a couple of them here that I think you can make a biblical case for. The first one is Christ wanted to identify with us. We're sinful. He wants to identify with us. Hebrews chapter 2 verse 17 says, Therefore in all things he had been made like his brethren, that he might be a merciful and faithful high priest in things pertaining to God to make propitiation for the sins of the people. Remember, baptism identifies us. When we do a baptism service, you're making a public proclamation that you want to identify yourself with Christ. That's why we do full immersion. That's what they did back in the New Testament. That's what we do. Is the idea of going into the water represents the grave. Coming out of the water represents being washed and coming out of the, you know, rising from the dead. And in fact, speaking of baptism, I just had somebody contact me this week that wants to get baptized. So therefore, throwing it out there, if anybody wants to get baptized, let us know. We'll get the baptismal set up in the back and we'll go ahead and do that. It is still winter, so we'll do it inside. The water will be warm. We won't make you go outside. But if you are interested in getting baptized, please do let us know because we'd like to set up a time and have another baptism service. But he identifies with us. That's the reason why he came down as a baby. That's why the reason he came down to earth is he identifies with us, Hebrews 2, verse 17. Another reason why is it validates John's ministry. Because what you're reading in John 1 is John validating Jesus as the Messiah. And so by Jesus going and getting baptized by John, it also validates John's ministry. Because John's ministry was the ministry that was going to baptize the Messiah. You can see how it works with each other there. A co-working in these ministries. And lastly, it carries a spiritual connotation as well that he is the Lamb. And what was one of the things that you did before you sacrificed a lamb according to the Bible? You'd wash it. If you can envision the tabernacle or the temple, you had this huge altar out front. But then you had this huge bronze laver that you would wash the sacrifices. There's a lot of symbolism here going on with this idea of being baptized. But please don't ever let you think that it came to this idea of Jesus was baptized because of some type of sin issue. That's nothing in it in any way whatsoever. Now, we have to talk about this verse right here. Jump back to John 1, please. John says something very interesting in 31. I did not know him. Verse 33. I did not know him. Now we've got to talk about that a little bit. Can you go with me now to Luke, please? Luke chapter 1. If you remember correctly, the birth story of John, Jesus and John are distant cousins. So did they know each other? How's this for a straightforward answer? Probably, possibly. You can quote me on that. But John says, I did not know him. So we have to talk about this a little bit. So we have this amazing story here of in Luke chapter 1, which we covered a couple weeks ago of John. And then we have the story of Jesus in Luke chapter 1. 
And then Mary and Elizabeth meet. Elizabeth is John's mom. Mary is obviously Jesus' mom. Verse 39. Now Mary arose in those days and went to the hill country with haste to a city of Judah and entered the house of Zacharias and greeted Elizabeth. And it happened when Elizabeth heard the greeting of Mary that the babe leaped in her womb and Elizabeth was filled with the Holy Spirit. Then she spoke out with a loud voice and said, Blessed are you among women, and blessed is the fruit of your womb. But why is this granted to me? The mother of my Lord should come to me. For indeed, as soon as the voice of your greeting sounded in my ears, the babe leapt in my womb for joy. Blessed is she who believed, for there will be fulfillment of those things which were told her from the Lord. Now we know from earlier on in the chapter there, verse 36 of chapter 1, Now Elizabeth, your relative, has also conceived a son. So we know that there's some relation there. When we study this out, we know that Elizabeth was much older. We know that from Luke chapter 1, and best as we can figure, Mary was much younger. It gets really interesting when you study in the Bible the terms that we use so common nowadays. We have all these terms, and I do not fully grasp them. I get the idea of son, daughter. I get that. Mom, dad. I even get grandma, grandpa, great grandma, grandpa. I got that. And I'm pretty confident on aunt, uncle, great aunt, uncle, and all that. First cousins, yeah. You get past first cousins, I don't understand or grasp this in any way whatsoever. I don't understand fully how my, what my second cousin is or my first cousin once removed or anything along that type of line. Now, I'm sure somebody will probably email, contact me, or pull me aside afterwards and try to explain it to me, and I will smile very politely, but I really don't know. They didn't have all those terms back then. So therefore, you were a relative. We know that they were quite the difference in age. They were related somehow, some way. But I don't want you to feel like that this is possibly first cousins that hung out together every Saturday for supper. So, John says, I did not know him. Now, did they run into each other as toddlers? It's quite possible. Did they run into each other as young adults? I don't know. Because look at Luke chapter 1, jump ahead to verse 80. Look at the description of John, verse 80. So the child grew, this is John, and became strong in spirit and was in the deserts to the day of his manifestation to Israel. Sounds like when John got old enough to be on his own, he went out to the deserts. So when John made his appearance, we know Jesus was around 30. And so that means John would have been 30, whatever, plus six months. John's coming out of the desert clothed in that garb and the belt and hairy and eating locusts and he's a strange little cookie. He got everybody's attention pretty quickly. So I don't think they got together every Friday night for cards type thing. But the real thing that I think we're trying to figure out here is that Jesus was not known and the sense of what his role was and his purpose was and until John saw him and all of a sudden it was revealed to him because, look at 33 for more detail, I did not know him, but he who sent me, God who sent me to baptize with water said, upon whom you see the Spirit descending and remaining on him, this is he who baptized with the Holy Spirit. And it seems like what we can piece together in the different gospel accounts of, of Matthew and Luke and John, that when Jesus showed up to get baptized, it's like the light came on for John. He says, you're the one. You're the one. And then it was confirmed with the voice and the dove. And then Jesus leaves. Forty days later, it looks like he comes back. And this is now why John says, guys, this is the one I was telling you about. And I didn't know he was the one. I, I didn't know this. But now I know and I'm trying to tell you this. You can see the excitement in John's voice. Because the problem was... 
They were not looking for a lamb, but a king. And Jesus didn't come like a king. Jesus didn't come like a lion. He came like a lamb. And that threw everybody. But then we have verse 34. And I have seen and testified that this is the Son of God. John's testimony. Confirmed by the Spirit and the voice. He knows that this is not just Jesus. This is the Messiah. And that's what's so amazing about verses 29 through 34. Day 2. Public. Speaking to the people. Behold. Look. The Lamb. So vitally important there. We'll pause real quick. Any quick questions about anything here before we go on? Good? Okay. Verse 35. Again the next day. John stood with two of his disciples. Now, that's not uncommon, the way it worked back in Bible times. If you were any type of teacher, you had disciples. Disciple does not mean this blind follower. It means that somebody that was following your teaching, etc. And it was quite common to do that. So John had people that were following him. Verse 36, and looking at Jesus as he walked, he said, Behold the Lamb of God. The two disciples heard him speak and they followed Jesus. Now, you've heard me make this point many times before. This is why I love John the Baptist. He is never trying to build anything for himself. He's always trying to point people towards the Lord. This is just the ongoing theme of John. is pointing people towards Christ. He's the one that later on, I think it's in the book of Luke, he has the great line that says, I must decrease, he must increase. Got to remember, at this time, there is nobody more popular than John. We've already mentioned earlier in Luke chapter 3, there was an expectation, there was an excitement. As we joked last week, John was so something. The religious leaders of the day are coming from Jerusalem and saying, we just want to confirm, you're not the Messiah, right? You're not the prophet, and you're not Elijah, right? That's how amazing John's ministry was. So for then John to stop and say, guys, it's time for me to exit stage left. Because now it's all about Jesus. That's... So many people are fighting for their piece of the pie and to be noticed and to be recognized and to be elevated. And Then you got John who's telling his disciples, go follow him. That's done. My job was to prepare you. My job was to point him out to you. My job was to connect you guys. It's my job to be done. And that's what I think is so fascinating about this is for John to humbly say, Behold the Lamb of God. The two disciples heard him speak and they followed Jesus. Who are the two disciples? Well, we know the name of one of them. One of them from verse 40 was Andrew. Who's the other one? Well, let's read on and see. And looking at Jesus as he walked, he said, Behold the Lamb of God. The two disciples heard him speak and they followed Jesus. Then Jesus turned and seeing them following, said to them, What do you seek? They said to him, Rabbi, which is to say when translated teacher, Where are you staying? And he said to them, Come and see. They came and saw where he was staying and remained with him that day. Now it's about the 10th hour. That's about 4 p.m. in the afternoon. One of the two who heard John speak and followed him was Andrew, Simon Peter's brother. He first found his own brother, Simon, and said to him, We have found the Messiah, which is translated the Christ. And he brought him to Jesus. And when Jesus looked at him, he said, You are Simon, the son of Jonah. You should now be called Cyphus, excuse me, Cyphus, which is translated a stone. So we have know that one of them is named Andrew. 
And just to kind of give you a little bit of a genealogy here, Andrew and Peter go together, they're brothers, and then John and James go together, they're brothers. So we get a calling here of the first couple disciples, if you will. We are introduced on how uh, Andrew comes to know Jesus, how Peter comes to know Jesus, and then how Philip and Nathaniel come to know Jesus. We still don't know who the unnamed one is. This is a theme in the book of John. John never refers to himself. He just doesn't. When you read through the book of John, he'll make comments like this, the disciple that Jesus loved. The disciple that laid across Jesus' breast at the Last Supper. He doesn't refer to himself. He just doesn't. So therefore, the context of this, and from what we can read in the book of John, it looks like that this unnamed disciple is probably John. Can we say that 100% for sure? No. Is it worth debating? Probably not. But it looks like it probably is. So just for simplicity, I'm just going to call him John here. So we have John and Andrew there. They look to be disciples of John the Baptist. They are now introduced to Jesus. And what do they do? Verse 37, they follow him. As we've said many times before out here, any time you see Jesus ask a question, make, make note of that. He never asks a question because he doesn't know the answer. So in verse 38, what do you seek? I think that's a deep question. What do you guys want? I don't think it's like, hey, why are you following me? Like, no, guys, what, what do you want? Verse 38. Where are you staying? That's a deep answer. Because the answer, that is a question, shows the desire to want to be with Jesus. See, that's what disciples did back then. They would do what they could to be around that teacher all the time. They wanted to be around him. And what happens is you start to see now them building a bit of a relationship. That's why, once again, when you get to the book of Mark, when Jesus just goes up to Peter and Andrew, John and James and says, follow me, they're willing to drop everything because we can tell from the book of John that they had built a relationship of getting a chance to know them. And if you jump ahead to John chapter 2, which is just a few days away, they're going to start to see miracles. Now, remember at this time, they are not the 12 apostles. They're two guys that have a lot of questions. And we could possibly infer, verse 39, he said to them, come and see. They came and saw where he was staying and remained with him that day. I bet they just peppered him. Just peppered him with questions. They were so excited, verse 40, that Andrew says he has to go find his brother. And without any lack of exaggeration, 41, we have found the Messiah. Remember, Christ and Messiah both mean anointed one. One's Hebrew, one's Greek. We found him. And Peter, you need to meet him. So Peter comes. And he says, you are Simon, son of Jonah, which is to be called Caiaphas, which is translated as stone. That is Petros, Peter. There's something deeper that Jesus sees in him. And we'll get to that later on. He's in the book of Matthew where he says, you are on this rock, I'll build my church. That idea of the stone there that he was used in many different ways to help spread the gospel. Now, I want to notice two points about this. First point, number one, verse 38. Comes up a lot. People want to know, how do I know I'm saved? First John is a great book about the assurance of salvation. If you ever have questioned whether you're saved or not, I encourage you to go read the book of First John. And they give you great points of assurance here. I just want to share two things with you real quick. You want to know if you're right with Christ? Verse 38. Do you desire to spend time with Him? I mean, isn't that just a simple answer? What do you seek? 38. What do we seek? 
We want to know where you're at, and we want to be where you're at, Jesus. So the first point I would say to you is this. Do you desire to spend time with Jesus? If you do not desire to spend time with Jesus, I would really ask you very lovingly, not questioning your salvation, then how much do you love him? I mean, I'm just trying to imagine getting home tonight from church and Dawn saying, hey, I just want to let you know I love you, but we really don't need to spend any time together. Like, I'm really good if we never speak or see each other for the rest of our lives. And if you want to live in a separate house, I mean, I'll still wear my ring and say I'm married, but I just have no, I just really don't need to be around you. I would probably be a little concerned about that. Because obviously, love is a desire to be with that person. So therefore, I have a desire to want to be with Jesus. I want to learn of him. I want to pray. I want to worship. I want to tell people about him. There's a desire. So the first thing I must ask you, is there a desire to spend time with him? And I've already mentioned point number two. Is there a desire to tell other people about him? Andrew was so amazed at who he met, he had to go tell his brother, Peter. If you want to know if you're saved or not, is there a desire to let other people know that you know the Messiah? And that's what's going to happen here in a little bit. We won't get into it until next week, but look at 43. The following day, Jesus wanted to go to Galilee, and he found Philip and said to him, follow me. Now, Philip was from Bethsaida, the city of Andrew and Peter, which we'll get into next week, but this is a small town. So Peter, Andrew, and and Philip, all these guys were, were just people from the same little town. Philip found Nathanael and said to him, we have found him, of whom Moses and the law and also the prophets wrote, Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. Nathanael said to him, can anything good come out of Nazareth? Nazareth had quite the reputation. Philip said to him, come and see. Do you see that idea? Philip wanted to bring people to meet Jesus. Two simple points. A litmus test of your walk with Christ. Do you desire to spend time with him? And do you desire to introduce other people to Jesus? That's what you see the disciples doing. Now, real quick point, in case you're not with me next week. Well, I have a desire to introduce people to Jesus, but they don't have a desire to meet Him. I, I know what you're talking about there. I was talking to some people Monday and trying to start up a conversation, and it was just nothing. I mean, there was nothing. No desire in any way whatsoever. I appreciate Philip in verse 46 so much. Come and see. No push, no push, no force, no nothing. If you want it, it's there. Do you ever realize what Jesus' altar calls are like? Back to 43. Follow me. He doesn't push anything. I would like to introduce you to Jesus. I don't want to be introduced to Jesus. I'm not going to push it. But I would like you to know who he is. Two things to know if you have a desire there. Final points here to kind of close up because we're going to stop right here because 43 through 51, there's too much in there to try to do here in about five minutes. Final points. What do we see so far going on? We see Jesus being introduced that the Messiah is here. We see him being introduced as the lamb that takes away the sin of the world. And now we see him follow the lamb. A desire to want to be with him and a desire to tell other people about him. We see the pure simplicity of just follow me. Not just lip service, but an actual desire to follow Christ. To the point of where are you staying? Because we want to go be with you and stay with you. What I want to close with is this. Can you go with me to Luke chapter 9, please? Luke chapter 9. 
there is a huge verbal push for many people to claim a relationship with Christ. But the reality is, how many of them are actually following? I think of what it says in Isaiah 29. And as much as these people draw near me with their mouths and honor me with their lips, but have removed their hearts far from me. On every Sunday in America, there will be churches full of people that are mentioning and talking about Christ. But is there desire there? There's a real danger sometimes in basing our relationship with Christ off of our words. Now, don't take this the wrong way because some of you may be thinking, okay, Romans 10, 9 to 10, if you confess with your mouth and believe in your heart that Jesus, you know, you're saved, confess with your mouth. And I agree with that. I'm not trying to take anything away from that. But I'm thinking of the Matthew 7 verse right now. Many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not cast out demons, do miracles? And Jesus says, away from me, I never knew you. They had a lot of words, but no relationship. Look here at Luke 9, 57. Now it happened as they journeyed on the road that someone said to him, Lord, I will follow you wherever you go. And Jesus said to him, foxes have holes and birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. What a statement, 57. I will follow you wherever you go. Words. Jesus in 58. But are you willing to make the sacrifice? 59. Then he said to another, follow me. He said, but... Lord, let me first go and bury my father. Jesus said to him, let the dead bury their own dead, but you go and preach the kingdom of God. Look at Christ's altar call. Once again, follow me. No push, no pressure. If you want me, I am here. Now you may say, well, that sounds a little harsh. Let the dead bury their own dead. Please remember from a Jewish standpoint, you were buried the day you died. So this is not like, hey, my dad just passed away and we have the funeral coming up in five days. Can we? No, no. He's basically saying, Jesus, I will follow you once I'm done with what I believe are my personal responsibilities and obligations. And Christ's response back to that is 59, no, I'm number one. 60, Jesus said to them, excuse me, 61, another also said, Lord, I will follow you, but let me first go and bid them farewell who are at my house. I'll follow you, Jesus, but let me take care of this first. Well, then he's not number one. Jesus said to him, no one having put his hand to the plow and looking back is fit for the kingdom of God. Anybody that's ever done any type of farming, I remember my dad teaching me this as a kid out there working ground or chopping wheat stubble. You pick something in the distance and you keep your eye on it. If I keep looking back, I'm going to get crooked. You've got to keep your eyes on Christ, looking unto Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith, Hebrews 12. I just bring this up real quickly to say it's not about what we say. This is why Jesus said, follow me. These guys... When they followed him, it was a complete, utter lifestyle change. To the point of Mark, left their nets, their parents, and everything. And they committed years of walking around with Jesus following him. And I just want to encourage you. Do you desire to spend time with him? Do you desire to tell other people about him? Or is it just a lot of words? Christ isn't looking for words. He's looking for the disciples that are willing to stop and say... Lord, I'm all in. And that's what you see happening here in John chapter 1. So we'll close it right there for tonight. We'll pick it up in 43 next week. We've already covered a little bit of it. And then hopefully we have enough time to get into John 2, the first miracle of turning water into wine. All right, any final questions, comments about anything here before we close up? Good. All right, hey, let's pray. Lord, help us. I just think of that passage of incline our hearts to your word and incline our hearts to your statutes and to your laws.
Take our hearts. Lord, unite them to you. Help us to truly desire to follow you and proclaim you in all that we say and all that we do. Thank you, Lord, in your name. Amen. In the way of announcements here, just a couple quick things to close up. Uh, winter weather clothing giveaway coming up February 15th through the 16th. Uh, you can start bringing in items in February 7th, a week from this Sunday. You can place those items in room 5. It will be in the foyer. We have some sheets back there on the back table. You can grab some of those, hang those up. Please note this is only winter weather clothing stuff. This is not the typical garage sale giveaway things, etc. And speaking of winter weather, if you have not got signed up for the winter weather cancellation list, um, please sign up for that. There's some weather coming this weekend. But if you have not got signed up for that, please do. If you've signed up in the past, you do not need to sign up again. If you're watching online, you can uh, contact Pat and she can get you signed up for that as well. We mentioned also, I believe, on Sunday, but this coming Saturday from 10 to 12 out here at church is visitation uh, for Nicholas and Heather Schriebert. Their little baby Owen passed away. And uh, so the visitation will be from 10 to 12 out here Saturday at church with a uh, private service then at 1230 as well. So that will be going on this Saturday. Um, I believe that's everything that's going on. So, hey, you guys have a good week. God bless. We'll catch you face-to-face online here in the next couple weeks then. All right, take care. God bless.